couple of years ago, a video clip from comedian Stephen He kind of became a viral meme. And you've probably seen it if you see some of this on social media. But he had a, a, a video he made. It was a comedic sketch in which he's sitting down playing a video game. And uh, he, he gets to select the difficulty level of the game. Now, he's Asian, and he wanted to express through this skit kind of how difficult Asians have it in life. And so it had difficulty levels of easy, medium, hard, and the hardest level was Asian. So he selects Asian, and uh, he's playing. But it doesn't matter what he does, he dies. <laughs> Whatever decision he makes, he dies uh, in the video, right? And he's growing more and more frustrated, and then there's a moment in there where his character dies because of emotional damage, so he takes off his flip-flop and throws it at the screen, and in a thick accent, which I'm not going to reproduce, he yells, emotional damage, Well, so people edited that clip out and appended it to other videos where people kind of experience some type of emotional event that you would classify as emotional damage. Uh, Maybe a girl got publicly dumped by her boyfriend, and that video would play, and at the end of it, they'd show these few seconds of him throwing his shoe and yelling emotional damage. Or maybe someone wanted to own someone who was being hypocritical, or they insulted him or made fun of them, and this clip would be appended to that video. And I think when we come to this passage, I feel that's kind of what some people experience when they read Paul's words to Timothy here at the end of chapter 2. They read this, and they suffer some type of emotional damage because it really hits us and confronts us in a hard way. Now, a few weeks ago, social media, Christian social media especially, was buzzing at the news that the Southern Baptist Convention had removed from its cooperative membership one of the largest churches in America, along with its uh, very well-recognized high-profile pastor. And the reason that they stated that they did this was because uh, this church could no longer be in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention because they had been practicing for a number of years uh, the ordination of female pastors, and recently they had named a husband and wife as co-senior pastors uh, of the church. And the SBC said this violates the, the Baptist faith and message, and therefore this church could no longer be in friendly cooperation. As you can imagine, there was great uproar over this, Uh, There were people cheering the decision. There were others lamenting the decision. But what are we to make of the explosion of female pastors in churches today? Pentecostal, charismatic, in fact, in many mainline denominational churches, we have seen uh, the explosion of ordination of women to these positions of pastor, elder, overseers, or bishops. We'll kind of use those terms interchangeably uh, today. Are they right in doing those things? Or are those who don't do these things wrong, and maybe it's time to jettison these antiquated tradition, if that's what they are, they just kind of need to go away? Some of you, like others, might be sitting here and going, why are we even talking about this? Like, aren't there more important things to talk about? Like the gospel and, and the lost in the world? And why on earth are we still debating this issue? Aren't men and women equal? Aren't they the same? Can't they all do the same things? I'm glad you asked. Because we're going to talk about it. 
because it's an extremely relevant topic for our day and age. Not just because of the cultural uh, times we live in and the issues that we're facing in cultures. This does speak to that, and I believe it provides answers for us and guides us. Uh, But the reality is it goes to the heart of what we've been talking about. That's the purpose of Paul's letter to Timothy and also to Titus. There is an order in the public worship of the church. The theme of 1 Timothy is found in chapter 3, where he tells them that God's people need to learn how to behave in God's household because the church isn't our home. It's God's home. And God has order. God has rules. God is a God of order. And so he's got rules to his household, and we need to learn how to conduct ourselves in God's house because Paul says, here's what the church is. It's God's household, it's the church of the living God, and it's the pillar, the foundation of the truth. So we need to understand what this means. And if there's instructions for us in the the order of public worship in the church, then we want to know what that is because we want to submit ourselves to the word of God. Now, our passage today is a continuation of what we've been looking at for the last few weeks, beginning in chapter 2. The instructions specifically related to the church, the primacy of prayer. We began to look at Paul's instruction for the men, how they are to lead prayer, lifting up holy hands without arguing or quarreling, and how women are to adorn themselves, not just with the external things to beautify themselves, but they're to adorn themselves with godliness, with good works. And in actuality, we said that it's all of our responsibilities to adorn the gospel of God because we are God's messengers. And God's messengers adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and his message. So let's read from God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Would you please stand? We will read verses 8 through 15 of the second chapter of 1 Timothy. Timothy, hear the words of the living God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. You may take your seat. Now, what's interesting is that in our day, when we come to this passage, Paul's words here are viewed as bigoted, narrow-minded, chauvinistic, or maybe even misogynistic. You may have heard these things. You might think these things yourself. I fully recognize that in this room there may be various points of view when it comes to this passage. My role today is not just to provoke you or irk you or get you mad, 
but for you to deal with God's word as we all do here in this room. And though we may have assumptions or biases that we bring to this text, we need to submit that, submit that to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to deal in the area where maybe our assumptions or our viewpoints are wrong. Okay, uh, But Paul's words are viewed this way by many. In fact, feminists would be very quick to put Paul on blast. In fact, a lot of people in the church put Paul on blast, especially when it comes to these particular words here. But what's fascinating is that in Paul's day, this would not have been seen as bigoted or narrow-minded. It actually would have been viewed as liberal and progressive. It was a different time after all. So how are we to look at this passage? How are we to understand this controversial passage that is polarizing even in the church of Jesus Christ today? As I said last time, they're kind of preaching through some of these things. It's like being handed a hot potato and you got to juggle it. You either toss it or you hold on to it and preach it. We choose to preach it. But I liken this passage to having to preach, you know, like walking blindfolded through a field riddled with landmines, you know, and you don't know when it's going to go off, right? But that's okay, right? Our responsibility is to God's Word. Now, in understanding and interpreting this passage about the role of women in the church and public worship has several challenges. These aren't the only challenges. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about a few different ways that this passage is viewed and interpreted, uh, but we don't have time to go through, you know, through all of those things. Uh, but the first challenge we have is the controversial nature of this passage itself. It has caused divisions and splits in churches and denominations. PCUSA experienced a split over this a number of decades ago. The Methodist, the United Methodist Church, and its, some of its synods have experienced uh, divisions and splits denominationally as a result of this facet, those for and those against the ordination of women. A second challenge are the cultural pressures, right? Because these instructions that we read here for the role of women in the church goes against the prevailing attitudes of society and culture. Culture does not think this way, right? What Paul writes here sounds like he's putting women down, that he's discriminating against them on the basis of their gender, even though in our world today, is there really gender anymore? I don't know. It's whatever you want it to be. So why is this? Why does this matter? You know, what's he doing here? It seems scandalous. We should cancel Paul. Right? Women can do anything a man can do, in many cases better. So why should things be any different in the church what we find, sadly, is this the culture exerts this enormous pressure uh, on the church, and the church has many times just caved to that because like, hey, we, man, we don't want to be viewed this way. We don't want people to think ill of us. We don't want to, them to think that we are bigoted and that, or that we hate women or that we think men are superior to women. So you know what? It's just easier to go along with it. Biblical commands then take a back seat to the modern progressive conventions and mores. A third challenge is certain traditions in the church itself. And sadly, a lot of the traditions in the church have actually suppressed women, suppressed their gifts. They've marginalized women. And these church traditions persist in many places. So the attitude there is, well, it's kind of always been this way. 
Let's just continue without even evaluating whether it is good for the church or not. A fourth challenge I expressed earlier is our own personal bias and opinion that gets in the way of our understanding this teaching of Paul in 1 Timothy. Now we went through at the beginning of the year studying on uh, how to uh, interpret the word of God to understand what it means and how to apply it to our life. Uh, So we know we do bring a bias to the text, but that cannot be the, the grid or the lens we use to interpret scripture. Scripture means something. This was written to a particular people in a particular time. And though it wasn't written directly to us, it is, also, it is written for us. And so we learn from it. There is, there, is, there is an application. There is something for the church of Jesus Christ in all ages found in all of these uh, books. Right? So we can easily allow our experience and attitudes to be, again, that interpreted grid for controversial passages like this one. Right? And the fifth difficulty is just the challenge of interpreting a difficult passage like this one. It is not an easy one. In fact, we won't even probably have time today, but the last verse of this is probably one of the most difficult verses to interpret in the New Testament. Scholars are really just mixed on what exactly Paul meant by a woman being saved by childbearing. What? We'll see how far we get, right? So, again, I recognize there are different views in this room. Some of you have a particular way of seeing this. You know what? I respect it, you know, uh, and, and I understand it. But, again, whatever assumptions you bring in, re- in relation to the theme of this passage, my prayer is that you would humbly listen and ask the Holy Spirit to correct those assumptions if they are wrong. It is what I do every time I come to my study of God's Word. Lord, where I'm wrong, where I see something twisted or distorted, just Rebuke me, correct me, right, Um, so that I might see what you're saying and obey your word in this. Now, I do want to address quickly this charge against Paul of him being misogynistic or a woman hater is really a silly argument. And it has no biblical support. When you consider the amount of references in Paul's letter to women that he calls his co-laborers, his partners in the gospel, the greetings and the final salutations that mention these women who were close personal friends of him, he holds them in high esteem, in high regard. His ministry was supported by women. Many times the receptivity of the gospel as Paul preached was first received by women. So there's no biblical support to see Paul as a woman hater or being bigoted or putting women down in a certain way where they were not elevated or given a certain place. They were very integral to his ministry. In fact, they were part of his ministry team. I look at the uh, Acts chapter 16, the conversion of Lydia, and I encourage you to go and read this. It's, It's a beautiful story here where Paul and his traveling companions find themselves going to the riverside. They were seeking a place to go pray. And they go down to the riverside, and there's a group of women gathered there. And it says that they sit down to talk with them. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture and Jewish men, in fact, when we talk about John chapter 4, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, we see how scandalous that would have been in his time. But here you find Paul and his companions doing the very same thing, talking to women. 
and preaching the gospel to them, so much so that, that many are converted. And there's this particular woman, Lydia, who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. She's a God-fearing businesswoman, believes the gospel message. She's baptized. Her whole household experiences salvation and baptism. God moves on her heart so that she would actually begin to support Paul. In fact, she pleads for Paul and his companions to come stay at her house. Right? Just a beautiful gift of hospitality there. So Paul's not a misogynist. He's not a bigot. He doesn't hate women. He doesn't think little of them. Uh, he highly esteemed and valued women. So don't get on the bandwagon of, of canceling Paul because I think that's just a, an erroneous take on why he's writing this. All right, we're going to look at this in three parts. We'll spend the most part in the first, and that is looking at the apostolic restriction presented in verses 11 and 12, where he writes, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. That seems simple enough, right? It's a pretty straightforward command of the Lord. We could just end here. We can go to lunch early. Yes? We good? <laughs> and it's not so simple, is it, right? Uh, there's a lot to unpack in this passage. Now, as I said, there are different ways that this passage is viewed or interpreted or how people see it. So I'm just going to give you a few of these, and we're going to talk through while, why these really are not good views in this. All right? The first view, I would say that's one of the most common, is just that Paul is flat out wrong here. Paul is in error in what he wrote. He, some woman must have upset him. Must have yelled at him that morning as he's writing this letter to Timothy. He's like, you know what, Timothy? They just need to shut up. Don't even let them speak in the church. Amen. Thus saith the Lord. Right? But again, there's many just teach that Paul is just in error. He's either misinterpreted some rabbinic teaching or he just gets this wrong so we can't ignore this particular text because he missed it here. Now, it shouldn't be hard to figure out why that's a problem for us to even begin to think that. If we go down the path and saying, ah, some of this is an error, then what of Paul's writing do we actually accept as from the Lord? Do we get to choose and cherry pick what we want to receive and accept from Scripture when we don't like what it has to say to us? Can we jettison that, reject it, discard it, set it aside, rip it out of your Bible? Right? It presents enormous problems to even begin to that because then how do we even address Scripture? Either it is all authoritative, inerrant, inspired by God, or we're saying it's not. There's no, there's no in-between there. And again, some of these arguments, I'm simplifying. They're very nuanced in many cases. We just cannot explore those in great detail this morning. A second view is that Paul is merely addressing a cultural issue that was at this time impacting the church at Ephesus. In fact, this is one of the most common ways I hear this particular passage um, interpreted. You know, this, uh, this restriction, this prohibition uh, for women was because Paul is dealing with a cultural, like there was a, a rise in radical feminism in Ephesus that was creeping into the church at Ephesus. Maybe some of the women were, you know, kind of usurping authority and becoming domineering and controlling. Maybe that had to do with some of the things he mentions in chapter 1, that there was some preaching a different doctrine, you know. Uh, so he's merely dealing with a specific 
issue pertinent to Ephesus uh, only. And so this restriction is temporary and, again, just for Ephesus, okay? Again, it's the most common way you'll hear. In fact, I was just talking a few weeks ago with someone and telling them, yeah, this passage is coming up. And it was funny. The first thing he brought up, he goes, yeah, no, I don't believe that. He was dealing with something cultural at Ephesus. And the problem here is that as you begin to do a little reading and research uh, and read the commentaries of those who actually spent a lot of time understanding the, the, the culture of, of ancient Rome and especially of Asia Minor here, we find that Ephesus was not a hotbed of radical feminist supremacy as many portray it to be. It was a typical Roman provincial city. It did not have any women magistrates. In fact, the pagan cult hierarchy was controlled and largely dominated by men. For sure, there were uh, women involved in the cult uh, worship at the temple of Artemis. There were cult prostitutes and those things. But it was still a culture largely dominated and controlled uh, by men. Right? It was a city that was not run by women, but largely by men. So that aspect of be- just being a cultural issue alone is tough. The second reality is we're going to read a passage where Paul says virtually the same thing to the church at Corinth. Okay? So, anyway, let's look at that. Uh, a third uh, interpretation or view of this is that there is... Uh, an inadequate translation of some of the terms in this passage, specifically related to the phrase where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. That, that verb, exercise authority over man, is probably not the best translation, some would say. Uh, this command, they would see it as something in the negative. It's not a positive command, it's a negative command. In other words, Paul is addressing not the prohibition in all cases, that women are not to exercise authority over man, but in the manner in which they are exercising authority over man. They should not be doing it in a domineering or controlling way. So goes this particular argument against what Paul is teaching here. What he's merely saying is, it's not that a woman can't have authority over man or exercise it, but that she can't do it in a domineering or controlling way. Okay, um, For reasons uh, that I'm going to show you shortly, uh, that's probably not the best way that the translation in the ESV, NASB, NIV is actually the right translation. Exercise authority or have authority, and it's viewed in the positive, not the negative manner. So he's not, he's not restricting the misuse of authority. He's actually stated, what he's stating as a command is what he means there. Fourth, uh, argument that's presented against what Paul's saying is to actually use other words, Paul's other words against him. In other words, what has Paul said in other places that could invalidate or minimize what Paul is teaching in this passage? And the number one passage that's used in argument for this one is Galatians 3.28. You'll see it on screen as well. Where there Paul writes to the church at Galatia, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is uh, neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is the favorite passage that's brought up with those who disagree with Paul's view of the role of women in public worship. There's a challenge here, though. This particular passage has nothing to do with the teaching ministry of the local church. 
This passage has nothing to do with who it is that is supposed to be leading in the local church. This passage is couched in a teaching of Paul regarding the law of God, how Christ has fulfilled that law, how Christ is the great equalizer now that there is no preferential treatment given, like the Jews can't claim any preference you know, over the Gentiles. Right? If we come to faith in Christ, whether you're Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, we are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is not doing in this passage is erasing the distinctions between the categories he's making there. He's not saying there's no more Jew or Greek. Of course there were Jews or Greeks or Gentiles. He's not saying that there weren't those who were slaves and those who were free men. He's not saying that there weren't any more males or females. He's not erasing gender, is he? No, he's not doing that. But in Christ Jesus, we're all one. We all receive the same covenantal blessings. We're all of the seed of Abraham, which he goes to talk about. Christ has equalized us in that, but that doesn't mean there aren't any more distinctions in those external categories that he has Reference there. But furthermore, the passage has nothing to do. A lot of people would, would look at this passage and they would want to use it to blunt Paul's instructions, clearer, clearer instructions in First Timothy, or even try to uh, muzzle him, if you will. Now, the more liberal arguments deny the authority of these verses, and those who would be considered more evangelical egalitarians try to limit the application of these verses. Those are terms you might be familiar with, egalitarian or complementarian. Egalitarians is from the French, it means equal. Uh, you would say that the roles of men and women are the same or equal, where complementarian would say, no, the role of men and women are not the same, yet, but they are complementary. Okay? We'll talk about that more in a few moments when we start going through the passage. All right, so how are we to interpret this passage? What did Paul actually mean? So if he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which we believe he was, to write this down for the church at Ephesus, and by extension for the church throughout the ages, then we have to understand that it has important instructions for the church in every age, including our own, even though culture may say otherwise. What Paul writes here, and I am not a language scholar, I'm not a Greek scholar, I know enough just to be dangerous, okay? But the language he uses here is very clear. He's not waffling in what he's writing. He's not beating around the bush to say the hard things. You ever talk to someone who has to say something hard, but they never get to that point? And they're just going around, meandering around just peripheral issues, but they don't want to get to the hard thing. Now, he just pretty, he's just flat out stating the instructions that he's giving to Timothy for the ordering of public worship in the church. He's also not sticking his finger up in the air to gauge where the prevailing winds of culture are blowing so that he could steer the church in that direction. Sadly, a lot of pastors do that. So this was an important issue to Paul, and it was an important issue so much so that it is for all the churches, as you'll see shortly when we read 1 Corinthians 14. All right, so let's look at the particular phrases of this and kind of work through uh, the passage here to see what it speaks to us. He says here, let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. 
You may not realize this, but that statement itself is actually countercultural and revolutionary in his time. Let a woman learn. He shatters ancient stereotypes. In the Roman world, women were considered second-class citizens, basically. They were considered, by and large, academically and intellectually inferior. Men were the ones who were primarily educated. It's not to say some women were not educated. Many were, but it was still a culture that was dominated by men, and the educational system was geared towards men. In the Jewish synagogue, men and women were separated. Who was it that were actually taught in the synagogue? It was the men. Women sat separately. They prayed separately. They stood. But it was the men. Everything was directed towards the men. The men prayed publicly. Men participated while the women remained silent. Now, according to the Jerusalem Talmud, now the Talmud is a collection of the oral traditions of the rabbis, uh, but this is a second century uh, writing. Uh, there's a phrase there regarding this about women in the synagogue. And the rabbis wrote, it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's nuts when you think about it. I don't believe Paul would have felt that same way. The women played a very small role in the public life of the synagogue. Uh, a, a subsequent writing in the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, wrote, the men came to learn, the women came to hear. But that doesn't tell you everything, right? It was all men-focused, right? Women, eh, you can listen, you can hear, uh, but that's the extent of it. it it's, it's the men who, who are running the show here. The thing is, God's Word says the very opposite of this. So before he gives the restriction, he writes something that's empowering for women. Let a woman learn. Why? Because she's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let a woman learn. Why? Because God requires her to learn. The same theology that men need to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ is the same theology that women need to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no distinction there. A woman has the same responsibility to grow in the knowledge of God's Word, to grow in their knowledge of Bible doctrine. And Paul here is not afraid to, to shake things up culturally here and shatter cultural norms when they violate Scripture. So there's no negative attitudes here towards women. He says, no, let them learn. Is he not reflecting the same posture that Jesus had? There's no one who elevated women more than Jesus. He ministered to them. He talked to them. He didn't care about the Jewish customs who thought that a, a man talking to a woman was taboo, especially a Samaritan woman. They were disciples of his. They ministered to him. They traveled with him. Okay, He's just reflecting the same things. While the church sadly has not done this perfectly, history bears witness to the, to the fact that Christianity has lifted women to higher levels of respect and dignity and freedom. I know there's a lot of people who will argue otherwise. And I know there's a lot of uh, of, of, of failures in the church 
in this area, but by and large, this is the truth. We don't have no reason for any of us to be ashamed or apologetic about what God's word has to say about women in his word. None whatsoever. A woman can learn. A woman must learn, for she is a disciple of Christ. You know this here. The same exhortation I give to our men to be men of the word is what I give to our women. You're to be women of the word, mighty in scripture, mighty in the knowledge of God's word. Men need God's word. Women need God's word. Men need theology. Women need theology. The same things. All right. So we don't make that distinction here when it comes to this. The point he makes now here is not that a woman is to learn. She's to learn. So this prohibition doesn't mean that a woman is not involved in receiving instruction. And I know it's been used that way in some places. I I hardly recognize that this has been misapplied in a lot of churches. where, Where women are not instructed and they may not be part of the teaching portion of a church service. And that, I believe, is wrong. But Paul now addresses the manner or the how a woman is to learn. So let a woman learn, he says, quietly with all submissiveness. Those words, they grate you, don't they? What is he saying here? Is he saying that a woman is never to speak in public worship? You think that's what he's saying here? That she should keep her mouth shut? No. It's impossible, yes. I heard someone say it. It is impossible for women to stay. <laughs> I didn't say it, a woman said it, so I can repeat it, right? You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that there are women who prophesy and pray in the church. So how can it mean here that he's saying, no, a woman should never speak? Is that what he means by being quiet? I don't like the translation that says silent for this particular one. Quiet is the, is the word, which we'll explain in a moment here. No, he's not saying women are not to speak at all. In public worship, the word quietly, you see bookends 11 and 12, right? It bookends this restriction. The point is the demeanor, the manner in which women are to learn with a quiet and humble demeanor. It's a posture that women are to assume when the church is gathered and authoritative teaching is taking place. So when Paul is saying women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. That word quiet has this, is the same as Peter uses in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, where he writes of godly women, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We looked at this verse last week. So in the gathering of The church, when the church is assembled for public worship and the elders are teaching authoritatively from God's word, teaching apostolic doctrine, women are to be quiet learners, not the teachers. This is the point he's addressing here. They are to be respectful to the leadership. Now, mind you, these injunctions, though addressed to women, can actually apply to men as well, right? We all should be respectful in the aspect of teaching, respectful to the leadership and the teaching authority God has given the elders of the church, and they're to receive that teaching in a spirit of cheerful agreement. Now, 
Again, as I said earlier, there may have been some women in the church who were causing problems in this area. Maybe they were challenging the authority of the elders. Maybe they were trying to assume functions and roles that uh, did not pertain to them. That's not specifically stated here. So we're just we're making an assumption here. Uh, it's possible. Uh, but I don't think what Paul is saying is addressing that specifically because it's instruction he's given to all the churches. So women are to cultivate a spirit here of submissiveness in their participation in public worship. Now, that word submission is like a four-letter dirty word, isn't it? <laughs> right? You say that word, man, and it's like the claws come Nobody likes that word submission. People hate it. You know, feminists would say that submitting to a man is a violation of a woman's freedom, power, and independence. Listen, again, I, I want to acknowledge the abuses of texts like these because it's real. And I know some of you in this room, some women in this room, have been on the receiving end of the, of the misuse, distortion, and abuse, and use of scriptures like this. To, to cudgel and badger and beat women down and, and use as a license to abuse women. So categorically, I want to say we never are to give room for such a sinful use of Scripture in that fashion. A husband has no right to physically abuse, verbally abuse a woman, and then come back and say, you need to submit to my tyrannical domineering reign. That's not what these passages are used for. That's not what they're about. And if we hear that's happening, we're going to deal with that. Right? Because submission should never be a dirty word for a follower of Jesus Christ. Think about how many times in Scripture we're told to submit. First and foremost, we're to submit to God. Every one of us are to submit to Him. Husbands, right? Right? Husbands like to quote that, right? Wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands and everything. But yeah, wives are to submit to their own husbands. Not begrudgingly, but joyfully and cheerfully. We're told to submit to one another as, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're told to submit to those who are in spiritual leadership over us. So submission cannot be a dirty word. It cannot be something bad. It's actually a good thing. It's something God has ordained for us. It is something God has commanded us to do. And just because it's misused, abused, and mistreated doesn't mean we have license to discard that and say we're not going to do that because we would be in violation of even just submitting to God when it comes to this. So we have to resist the temptation to think of submission as something negative and vile. Now, that word for submission means to obey, right? To yield to authority. And again, it's viewed as a positive thing in Scripture, in the New Testament. And Paul writes, there to submit, women are to submit with all submissiveness. Isn't that interesting? Because partial submission is not submission, right? Right, because that leaves room to rebel, doesn't it? It's not begrudging submission because that leaves room to grumble. And complain, right? With all submissiveness, right? Total submission is what's in view. That's true submission. And who's our model for true and full submission, brothers and sisters? It's Jesus Christ, who submitted himself to the will of his Father, right? 
without complaining, doing it joyfully, doing it cheerfully, even to the cross. Right? That's our example. In the case of what Paul is saying here, then women are to submit in the church, not to all men, to qualified men who are qualified to be elders and submit to their authoritative teaching. Now, again, what Paul's expressing here is the posture of learning that all of us should have. I would just say, he's talking about his, his a teach, having a teachable spirit, isn't it? it? It's the way we would all choose to learn. Who can teach someone who's always talking? And you and I know, you know, when we read the verse in 1 Corinthians, right, in this passage here, where it tells a woman, if a woman has a question, to to talk to her husband. The the point with those things is not that a woman's question is not valid. It's that the question could be a form of challenging authority, and that's the point, because a question can be. My authority has been challenged like that. Many of you have experienced that, and it's a question that's asked. But the question is framed or asked in such a way that it's a dig to undermine authority. And Paul's saying that should not be present here. That should not happen. Happen. Every good student is quiet and receptive and learns to submit to the knowledge and authority of the teacher. It is the same attitude we see in Mary, isn't it? Who, who were told sat at the feet of Jesus to learn from him. That posture is the posture of a learner. Jesus, the rabbi sitting at the feet, a sign of submission, you know, listening, not talking, listening, receiving the authoritative teaching that was taking place. And so Paul is saying, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. This is the posture of women in public worship, and it's a good thing. It's not an evil thing. It's not a wicked thing. Now, let's get to the tough part here, the restriction. I do not permit a woman to teach. After parsing every single Greek word and analyzing the grammatical structure of this sentence, I have determined it means I do not permit a woman to teach. I mean, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's what it's saying. So what is this restriction or prohibition? Are women to never teach? Is a woman never, ever supposed to teach? Again, some would take it to mean that there is never a place where a woman can teach or never a place where a woman can teach a man. No, that's not what he's saying here. You know, we have examples in Scripture. We have a beautiful example in Acts chapter 16. You have Apollos who was mighty in the Scripture and he was preaching the gospel. There was a problem, though, he had an error in his doctrine of baptism. And we find a couple there, Priscilla and Achilla. Priscilla being the wife, Achilla the husband, right? And it says that they take Apollos aside privately. Now, here's a dude who knew the word, but there was an error here. And what do they do? They instruct him in the way. And the fact that Priscilla's name is mentioned first probably means that she was the one whom the apostles maybe recognized more. The thing is, it doesn't say anything about them that she was a pastor or a leader in the church. No, it's just that they took him aside privately to instruct him. So there's a man learning from a woman, and there is no, nothing here that says that that was a bad thing. Okay, 
So that's, that's not what he's saying there. And that's in Acts 18.26. You can read that. So what do we make then of Peter's explanation in Acts chapter 2? That what the people are now experiencing and seeing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Where all the sons and daughters of God now would prophesy. What are we to make of that? Right? They were all exercised prophetic ministry and People were hearing that. They were hearing the mysteries of God proclaimed in their tongue from men and women alike. We find in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul giving instruction for men and women how to exercise prophecy and prayer in orderly public worship. In Colossians 3.16, he writes, Let to both men and women, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another. So a prohibition on all teaching from women goes against the biblical commands and examples in Scripture. So Paul cannot mean here they can never, ever teach. Okay? That would be an erroneous view. There are time and places where even Christian men are to learn from Christian women. If some of you guys don't like that, get over it. However... There is one place where it's not appropriate for women to teach. And that is in the proclamation and exposition of God's word in the context of the gathering of the church for public worship. Again, I recognize there are churches who see this very differently. Uh, But Paul's using here the present tense form of the verb here. I do not permit. It's an apostolic command. He he does this frequently in other places here. So it's an apostolic command. It's not just meant for the addressee of this letter. It extends right beyond the readers of the letter. The restriction is for those occasions when the church gathers for the authoritative preaching and teaching of God's word like we're doing today. Okay, When God's word is, 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 is proclaimed, preached, taught... Apostolic doctrine being transmitted publicly and authoritatively and carrying with it the exercise of the doctrinal and disciplinary authority tied to the preaching ministry of the elders of a church. Otherwise, the role of elders is kind of meaningless if the aspect of their teaching is the same as everyone's. There is an authoritative element. What I'm teaching you is doctrine. I'm laying down the foundation of doctrine from the church. I am conveying to you the apostolic deposit as we have received it, right? As we talked about in the past here that Paul talks about frequently, the good deposit, the faith, right? The sound doctrine. This is what we transmit. Teaching of this capacity was Paul's official role as an apostle of the Lord, and it was the role given to qualified elders of the church. It is what elders do. So it's not a surprise that the very next thing that Paul addresses is what? He's going to talk about the qualifications of elders now. Now he's going to deal with, right on the other side of this, all right, here are those who are to rule in the church. Here are the ones who exercise authority in the church. And this is not all men. See, because here's the, the thing you need to understand. Most men are prohibited from doing the very same thing he's saying he's prohibiting the women to do here. Not all men are qualified to do what he's prohibiting women to do. So this verse, brothers and sisters, has nothing to do with whether men are superior, women are inferior. It has nothing to do with whether men and women are equal. 
Newsflash, they are. Because where was that established? Creation, right? Creation, right? This is not what this passage is about. Nor does this passage teach that women are to submit to all men. That's another distortion I've heard out there. That is not the case. Women, you're to submit to your own husbands in all things. And just like everyone else, you're to submit to the qualified and ordained elders of your church. Just like all, everyone is supposed to. Then he continues here, because this is connected, right? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. What does Paul have in view here, right? To exercise authority, or how some of you translating says to have authority. Again, the, the excuse and, and the arguments made sometimes is that this is maybe a, not a full translation here. He's only talking about the wrong kind of exercise of authority, one that is domineering and controlling. But one thing I want you to see here is the balance in the grammatical structure of what he writes in these two verses, right? And what Paul is communicating to us. He says that women should not teach, and that is a reflection of respect towards the command that a woman should learn quietly. And to not exercise authority over a man respects the command to learn with all submissiveness. They go hand in hand. He's not trying to argue something different here. He's just saying, here is how that fleshes itself out. I do not permit a a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. goes with what he said earlier. They're to learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Now, as I said earlier, this is what Paul taught all the churches. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to look at 33 through 38, but I encourage you to read that entire chapter and really soak in what Paul is conveying there to the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 38. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Praise God for that, right? As in all the churches of the saints. What churches? All the churches of the saints. All the churches. Verse 34. The woman should keep silent in the churches. It's the same word, okay? It's quiet. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Now, what law is that? It's God's law, right? From creation forward. Women are under the headship and authority of their husbands, of men, okay? For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Again, that doesn't preclude all speech here, okay? There is speech women are involved in the church. And we'll talk about some of those here in a few moments here. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Listen to this. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are what? Command of the Lord. Not my opinion. He's not saying, this is, this is my desire. This is my suggestion. Here's what I'd like to see just to kind of keep the peace and because of things. Go- no, he says, if any of you considers themselves a prophet then you'd know that what I'm telling you is command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. 
I mean, just a plain reading tells us he's talking to all the churches. He says it's a command of the Lord, and you recognize this or you fail to be recognized. He's just stating it clearly. This has been the traditional position of the church throughout the ages, not till maybe the 1800s, and especially over the last 50 to 60 years have we seen a change in the majority view of the church when it comes to this. Now, I'm going to move really quick through this uh, for the sake of time here, but the notes are online. Uh, Second point, apostolic rationale. And you're like, what? When are we going to go to lunch? Soon, I promise, okay? (laughs) Hold on, hold on, all right? Um, Paul backs up his argument by grounding it, the rationale for his restriction in two biblical events. But understand, he's not using them just as illustrations, okay? He's connecting those events to the very reasons for the prohibition. And again, note, none of the two reasons here have anything to do with culture or the rise of feminism in Ephesus, okay? 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, so here's the biblical rationale for the restriction. Creation, order, and design, and the fall. Here's why I give this biblical injunction, this restriction, this prohibition. First, creation. Adam was created first. Why does that even matter? Well, for one thing, I'm gonna, I, I like that Paul is stating this emphatically. It's not a myth. Okay? A lot of pastors out there is like, this was, that's a mythical story, okay? Adam and Eve and the creation account, that's not really it, okay? It's just, it's just, it's a, it's a mythological story. Well, not according to Jesus and certainly not according to Paul here, okay? The point is the nature of the created order establishes the relationship between men and women, between male and female. Adam was created first. He was the one who was given the the mandate to be the protector. He was the one who was told that he would have the authority to do all of the naming of the animals. In fact, he also names Eve twice, as a matter of fact. He was to be the protector and keeper of the garden of God. And then Eve was made from man to be his helper. That's not in an inferior position whatsoever. In fact, God himself calls himself the helper of Israel, okay? So Adam was made first, then Eve, okay? Adam was given the unique role, you know, as, as, as head, federal head of humanity, the representative head of humanity. Eve's role came alongside him to nurture, to help, and to support. Their roles is why we would say were complementary, okay? They were, however, not the same. Eve's role was not the same as Adam's. Adam's role was not the same as Eve's. Doesn't mean the men are better. Doesn't mean the women are less. Both are image bearers of God. But this view here, this creation reality, this complementary role extends to all marriages, to the marriage relationship, such that the head of The wife is her husband. He leads, he protects, he provides, and the wife is to help her husband and submit to his leadership. God gave men headship and authority over women. 
Why? Well, you, you get to ask him, okay? He just did. That doesn't mean that men are better and, and, and women are less, okay? The thing is, that reality extends to his teaching in the church. This order reflected in creation is the order that's also reflected in God's household. Think about this. We talked about Jesus, how he elevated women, and he did. And women were his disciples. Who did he choose to be his apostles? Or men. And one of those apostles turned out to be a rotten dude, right? And the apostles had to choose another apostle. Who did they choose? If, if Jesus had given them different instructions, that would have been the time to do it right there. But there's nothing wrong with that. That is God's design and God's order. Never mind that it's twisted. That happens. But God has established an order. The second is the fall. Eve was deceived, not Adam. Now, Paul's not making the point that that Eve was more gullible. Or that, you know, we can't trust women to teach or exercise authority, man, because they are easily deceived. That's not what he's, he's saying here at all, okay? Right? He's not blaming Eve for the fall because God already blamed someone for that. Who did he blame? Nope. Who gets the blame for the fall? Adam. Adam, right? That's laid squarely upon Adam. What was Eve's sin then? What, what's, what's he talking about here? Eve's sin was her attempt to overthrow the creation order. She was tempted by the thought of having her eyes open and being like God and knowing everything God and making that determination for herself between what is good and what is evil if she ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, right? Yes, she was technically deceived and the serpent deceived her and she even blamed the serpent, right? When God confronted them, she goes, you know, Adam blamed Eve and then Eve goes, oh, there's the serpent, right? He deceived me and I ate. However, Adam cannot claim deception, Adam cannot claim deception. Why? He knew full well what he was doing. God had given him the divine command. So when Adam sinned, he sinned with his eyes wide open. Okay? Adam, we're told, was with Eve when she sinned. And what was he doing? I think he was just picking his nose or something. Because he remained silent. While Eve's having this interaction and doing exactly what he knew God had told him not to do, he is silent. He is silent. He doesn't lead. He abdicates his leadership. Instead of being the one teaching, he now assumes the posture of a learner and listens to the voice of his wife. What was Eve's sin? Sin was usurping the leadership role that was Adam's and attempting to overthrow the creation order and teaching her husband, putting him under her authority, which was a reversal of God's order. That role reversal was costly to humanity. And understand, think about this, how it is in context with what Paul is talking about here. God holds Adam spiritually responsible, right? And he makes it clear to Eve that her part in all of this would lead to her continual quest to attempt to usurp and subvert her husband's authority. And that would continually be met with male dominance. 
So now, what should have been a peaceful relationship between man and woman, husband and wife, was going to be a relationship fraught with conflict. Right? That's going to be part of male and female relations. Here's the point. The Bible does not teach that men should preach and be pastors and elders because they will do a better job. And women can't be trusted because they're more susceptible to error. Because this apostolic restriction is not based here on who's the better teacher. We know many times women are the better teachers. They're better communicators. You know, they, they can analyze and understand things many times. They get, get to the emotional level of things. It's not based on that kind of merit here. And who's the better teacher? It's based on the established, God's established order at creation. And the fall of Adam and Eve is, is, is the rationale here because it shows what can happen when that created order is reversed. And those who seek to overthrow God's order in the church are sons and daughters of Eve, whom he calls the transgressor. They're like their mother. They're like their mother. Now, I can speak anecdotally of, uh, anecdotally of, of, of the constellation of problems in churches that are led by women and female elders because they're out of order. They're out of order. Some of you may have been part of that. Some of you have shared stories with me of those. But there's a reason for that. And it's not that men are, are, are wicked or evil or that they're easily susceptible to deception. It's that God has an order. And when that order is reversed, there's no blessing in that. Guess what? There are problems when this order is reversed in the home. When women lead and men aren't leading, same thing. Same thing there, right? When women lead, it's because men have failed in their leadership. God has an order, and we would do well to preserve that order and to keep it. Isaiah chapter 3, read this at some point here, but one of the signs of judgment on Israel was that they would be led by infants and women. It was not a good thing because God has an order, and that's the important thing. Oh, my Lord, where's the time gone? We do need to close here, but listen. Read verse 15, she'll be saved through childbearing. It's a difficult verse to, to walk through, but let me give you the nitty-gritty of what I believe in my study here that would be a good interpretation of this passage, okay? Um, he's not saying that women are going to be saved by having a baby, okay? Well, I got a baby, I'm saved. That's not what he's saying here, okay? <laughs> All right? Uh, what he's saying here is that this is something that's universally and generally the case here about women, right? Women are distinctly fashioned and made by God, right, to be able to bear children. Now, we know some women cannot. We know there are exceptions to that. We know there are single women, right, who are not going to have babies here. That's, that, that, that's not the main point of what he's saying here, right? The idea is that a woman is saved not by becoming a man, but by embracing her God-given calling as a woman. Women, you don't need to be like men. Stop it. Men, you don't need to be like women either, but that's another sermon, okay? <laughs> but we don't need to buy the lie of this world that said a woman is only fulfilled if she does what a man does. 
that her identity is found in something other than womanhood or motherhood or the things that God has ordained and placed in the wheelhouse of women, but that she needs to be like a man. She needs to rule like a man and exercise authority like a man. And that is a reversal of God's order. So I think Paul's just kind of giving an encouragement to women here. It's like, listen, just be you. Be what God made you to be. It's a beautiful thing. It's a God thing. And when that order is preserved in the church, the church flourishes. Right? There, this might also be a reference to the promise in Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman who would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. I don't have time to go into all of that. But that's, that, that's a possibility that he was alluding to that there. But let me close here. The sad reality in the church is that this is not a woman problem that's being addressed. It's a man problem. It's what happens when men fail to take responsibility and women have to step up to lead. And that's exactly what's happened many times. Men abdicate their God-given mandate to spiritually lead, protect, and provide. And what are women to do? They're left holding the bag. This this happens in many places. We know that women are more frequent church attenders. They serve more. They're more likely to attend prayer meetings, Bible studies. They're the largest purchasers and consumers of, of, of Bible study resources and books and materials. Again, uh, they're more eager to grow in their faith. They're more interested in reading and studying the word. That's a man problem. Because men should be right up there with them, but we know that's not the case. So I'm very thankful for the amazing women of Scent Church. I am blown away by what I see in our women and their their love for Jesus and and their hunger and desire for the word of God. I want you to know that you are valued, you're treasured, you are appreciated. Your gifts are welcome here. We need them. You are needed here, okay? And our commitment here is to, to allow your gifts to flourish in this body, with that, our commitment is also to be faithful to the word of God. So our practice of male-only eldership is grounded in fidelity to God's word and the order he has established for the church. It's not because you're inferior. It's not because you can't teach. There are many places you can teach. What we want is his word to shape the life of our church in every way. So we're not going to bow to cultural demands or pressures when they contradict and violate Scripture. We're going to obey God. We value the teaching gift of women. We want our women to be mighty in the Scripture. We want to equip and disciple other women in the congregation. We have an an equipping event coming up here that's sponsored by Restoration Church that we're a part of, May uh, 5th and 6th. We would love all our ladies to be part of that. I know communication has gone out. See Betsa uh, or Jesse. They have more information regarding that. But if you want to go and, and, and it's cost prohibitive for you, let them know. We're going to cover that for you, okay? Because we believe that women need to be equipped to teach also here, okay? We, uh, the, the challenge here is we, that the focus becomes on this narrow restriction of teaching activity that's reserved you know, for qualified men in the church. And that's where all the focus goes instead of all the places that God can use you, women. Think about that. We're, we're told that older women are to teach the younger women and to mentor the younger women. You need to be teaching. 
You're to teach your children. That's a primary responsibility of every mother to raise up young disciples of Jesus. That is not a lesser role. Please. It's so important. You can teach the children of our church. You can pray. You can serve in a whole host of ministries. You can share your faith with others. You can encourage others. You can minister to the sick. You can minister to the widows. You can minister and help new moms. You can open your home and gospel hospitality to others. You can bring meals. You can help out, put on baby showers. You can lead women's Bible studies. You can teach systematic theology to other women. You can be part of the music ministry. You can come alongside me and help me in cases that may involve other women or where we need the perspective of women. There are ample opportunities for you to minister and to teach, and you are needed. You're needed. I'm telling you, you're needed. So if you're still struggling in this area and you're like, I've still got questions on this, ask me. All right, let's sit down and talk about it. But I want you to know your gifts are needed in this church. You're part of equipping and building up the church of Jesus Christ. This passage isn't to diminish that or put your abilities or gifts on the back burner. It's a narrow restriction But there's a whole host of things, women, that you can do. But the biblical burden of this chapter rests primarily with men. Not about what women can't do, but what men must do. Don't miss this. Sent men, it's time to stand up, to lead in your home, and to lead in the church. You're needed in both of those arenas. And I'm convinced when we follow God's order, we will find that our church will be a place where both men and women thrive, and it'll be a place of life, health, and healing for the glory of God.